Today I'll be talking to Terry Francis about disfellowshipping. In our churches, we love to use big words. We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness. See what I mean? Inconceivable. While I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Before we get started in today's topic, let me remind you to go and check out EdenHollow.com. This is the company I started to start publishing some Bible study guides and spiritual books, but we're starting to branch out into some fiction and even talking to some other authors. We'd love to have you check out what's going on at EdenHollow.com. Now let's jump into today's episode. Terry Francis is a great friend of mine. We met when we started working together a couple of years ago up in the Memphis area, and we, of course, became great friends in the work that we did together as we served the church there. He is a fantastic preacher, a great student of God's Word, and I think you'll be impressed with some of the things he has to talk about today. I was particularly excited to interview him on this topic because it's a topic he and I have spoken about at length on several occasions when we did a lot of work together. So uh, he'll do a great job of expounding the scriptures and talking about the different aspects of disfellowshipping, what we do well, what we do poorly. Let's go ahead and jump on in. Give us a common everyday man's definition of the idea of disfellowshipping. The withdrawal of fellowship or disfellowshipping has always been, you know, just a break in the fellowship. I mean, if you ask me what a common everyday man's definition of it, it's to be brutal. It's kicking people out of the church. And I know that sounds a little harsh, but it's a severing of the somebody's membership, truthfully, is how it really is treated. We can get di- deeper into this, but I think it's, a, for us, it's been kind of our form of excommunication for certain folks. So give a definition of excommunication for those who aren't familiar with that term. Well, in Catholicism, that's a break in fellowship, but it, it is literally a kicking you out of the Catholic Church. And, I mean, excommunication in its in its purest form means that you're considered dead to other Catholics. I mean, it's, it's a pretty harsh kind of thing. At least that's my understanding. Maybe that's not correct, but that's kind of how I've always understood it. I don't know about, about you, Adam, but I've seen this withdrawal of fellowship thing used kind of in a similar way. What happens a lot of times is that somebody gets their life in a mess and won't repent. Action needs to be taken to try to convince them to change that. And usually what happens is, unfortunately, we just remove them from the role. That's about the totality of what happens when it comes to this fellowship, withdrawal of fellowship. And then we wonder why it's not effective when that's how we handle it. My experience over the years has been that you've got somebody who has come to worship. They've been a part of the group for a while. Everybody knows who they are, ideally, you you would hope. And for whatever reason, nobody really knows, but that person has decided to stop coming for a while. Well, eventually, and, and I mean, sometimes eventually means six months, a year later, is brought to the attention of those who are are in charge that whether that be elders or if there's not elders at a congregation the men of the congregation 
or even the whole congregation, it gets brought before them. You know, so-and-so has not been coming to worship. We haven't seen them in six months. And what that eventually leads to, there are other steps along the way, but eventually a letter is typed up and mailed to them that basically says, you are no longer recognized as a member of this local group of Christians. Is that your experience also? Yeah, I I don't know about you, but it seems like sometimes this is more of a administrative process to clean up the directory is what it feels like. Like, oh, we've got these people that have not been here in two years. We better make it official that they're no longer here. And, uh, you know, Adam, that's just, that's not what this is for. Um, and I think, I think there's just a confusion across the board. That's just, it's really steep too. And, and the, the reason I say it's also an administrative kind of thing is like, in most places, the one action that always accompanies this is a letter. So you have a record of what you're doing, like a, like almost a legal record. Um, and it just feels like there's this, this traditional process of kind of roster purging every so often. And I think the problem is, especially when it's six months, two years down the road, you've, you've missed your opportunity to really help that person if they've just kind of been dormant that long. And it's just not effective. I, I think, I think one of the things is it's not always, I've seen it be effective and I think you have too, but it is, it's more rare than it should be. And we, we could talk about why all that is, but I think there's several reasons for that. But So let's, let's kind of go back to the nuts and bolts of this, because you just mentioned there uh, that it, you know, you, and you've mentioned several times that the way we typically do it is not helpful. Yeah. All we've mentioned so far is that this, I, this concept of disciplining is treated as if it is a excommunication, it is a purging of the roster, it is a getting rid of the dead wood so that everything that's left is vibrant and alive. Does it have a purpose beyond that? We haven't really established that as as part of our definition yet. Yeah, and I think that's where this for me... It's funny because when it comes to church discipline, the word we always use is withdrawal or disfellowshipping. And, uh, you know, several several years ago, I started kind of looking at this a little bit different. And I, I think that, first off, before we ever get to this point, there should be a lot of discussions and admonitions with this person who's lost in sin to change that before we ever get to that point. And that's that's not always part of the process. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying a lot of times we wait until it's far too late to t- say anything, you know. Um, but then when you read the scriptures, there's, especially like in Romans six, uh, 16 and verses 17 through 18 and 2 Thessalonians 3, it uses this term to note or to mark somebody. And that that word is um, the idea of even branding somebody. And it, really, when you, when you read through, and there's just a long list of passages, but, you know, in all of these passages, what's happened is that at some point, this person has been 
determined to be unfaithful and and lost. And the response then is to publicly mark that person that way. Romans 16, you note the individual. Um, 2 Thessalonians 3, I think it's verse 6, verse 14 to 15, you, you note that person and don't keep company with them. 1 Timothy 5.20, it's kind of the same idea. You rebuke the sinner publicly. That's all that marking them would be. Uh, in 2 John 1, you're not to receive the man into your house. Well, how, you know not gonna, how, how are you going to know who you shouldn't receive into your house? They've been publicly branded. So I think with a better way to look at this, Adam, for me is that when it comes to discipline, there's a lot of things before that that we, we should do. But when it comes to this point, the, the process really is to publicly acknowledge this person's life is not right. And then a consequence of that acknowledgement is that the, the relationship we have with that person has to change. And I think that's the best way to describe what this idea of withdrawing fellowship really is, is this this is a break in our relationship. You, you no longer have the same relationship with this person. Why? Because they have been marked to be unfaithful. And and that brings us to a thing you and I have had a lot of conversations about over the years, which is one of the problems here that this doesn't work is there's no relationship to break to begin with. Like one of the reasons that discipline fails here is because we don't have the fellowship we should have to change. And so when you, you know, there's some people that when they fall away and nobody's talked to them for two years, well, why do they care that there's a withdrawal of fellowship at that point? There's nothing, there's, they're not losing anything. You know, to me, that's the easiest way to understand all of this. There, there is this this encouragement in Second Thessalonians three fifteen that Paul says, "Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him." And some translations say, "Admonish, warn him as a brother." And that's after you've quote marked him. This is where the withdrawal of fellowship thing I think has really worked against us. And the illustration I know you've heard me use before: if you're walking down the the aisles of the grocery store and you see a guy in the next aisle over who is used to go to church with you, and for whatever reason, he's been withdrawn from. Well, the way we handle that, we we would skip that aisle completely and avoid that person. Whereas what Paul tells the Thessalonians is, if you're in the grocery store and you see that guy over there on the salad dressing aisle, even if you don't need salad dressing, you go pick up a bottle of salad dressing and you create an opportunity to admonish him and tell him, we miss you, where have you been? And that that's a completely different handling of this whole process than the one that traditionally I have experienced myself. Part of the difficulty, at least uh, in what I've experienced at different places I've been, as you said, in a lot of cases, there's not that tight-knit family-like brother-to-brother, brother-to-sister, sister-to-sister relationship. Uh, The other thing is oftentimes, the disfellowshipping is coming directly from the leadership of the congregation without there ever actually having been any sort of escalation that would lead to the disfellowshipping. You know, because that person has withdrawn their fellowship from uh, this congregation, two years later, this congregation, without any sort of interaction over those two years, sends a letter to withdraw fellowship from them. And it's almost a, you don't break up with me, I'm breaking up with you kind of situation there. <laughs> yeah. Instead of it being a an actual trying to salvage a relationship, it is saving faith and just, instead of saving a relationship. Let me say this. I think it's interesting that for many people who've been withdrawn from, this action is the only 
form of leadership they've ever experienced within the church from 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 leaders. I mean, I, you and I probably could come up with examples of people who never interacted with leadership outside of the time they placed membership and the time that they got a letter telling them that they were longer no longer members. Like, yeah. and that's the totality of their interaction with elderships. And and just think about that. What a failure that is to have no other interaction with an eldership in between those two moments. Well, and that, that's where I, I always go back to Matthew chapter 18. In this passage, there is a focus on relationship. It's not just a focus on a dismissal, uh, which is how I would probably rephrase the concept of disfellowshipping. Uh, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. So that's relationship. That's two people able to talk and able to have respect for one another and a difficult conversation together. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. So there's the second. If, if you can't help the person, take two or three others who they have respect for, and you go have an intervention of sorts. That's the way we often think of it in those terms. If he doesn't pay attention to them, then tell the church. So now there's a, the whole church is involved in trying to restore this person and get them back walking the way they're supposed to walk. And then if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, then let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector. There is a, a whole church involvement in this process where it has escalated from a one-to-one to, -one to a few-to-one to a, few to a uh, large group-to-one so that they can be won back over. And all of it is to win them back, not to dismiss. And that's right. where I think we go wrong well, with the way it often gets done these days. Well, even the language in 1 Corinthians 5 is pretty harsh because you're turning one over to Satan. But you're doing that so that his soul may be saved. Like all of these passages point to restoration as the reason for these things. The problem is that the way we commonly practice this does not point to restoration. I think that's one of the the real challenges we have that just our common practice doesn't achieve the goal. And by the way, I think Adam, the thing to keep in mind here is I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm not for church discipline. I'm for doing it. I'm just yes. for doing it right. I, th I think, I think that's the difference. I think some people would hear this and go, well, he's saying it doesn't work and think I'm discrediting it. No, I think it will work. I think God's plan always works. And I think that when you sit back and you see how we're doing it and it's not working, then what that tells me is we're not doing it right. We've messed up the process somewhere. I just think that's a, that's a concern for me. You always hear this conversation about trying to circumvent withdrawing fellowship by whether or not the person's withdrawn their fellowship before you withdraw fellowship. It's like a, it's like you said earlier, I'm, you're not, you know, I'm not fired. I'm quitting. You know, we're trying to figure out who's in control. Here's the thing. Like if you're withdrawing fellowship from somebody, the reality is they've already broken their fellowship with you. That's why you're withdrawing your fellowship. Like spiritually, you're not in fellowship with each other. Yeah. And that's why I say this is a more, the way we practice it today is more administrative. I mean, when we think about withdrawing fellowship, we're, we're thinking about removing somebody from the church directory. That's really what we have in our mind. That's, that's what this all boils down to. That's just not what this is supposed to be about. I, I just think that at the end of the day, we've got to practice in a, this in a way that actually focuses on soul saving. 
and restoration. In order for this to work, the first requirement is before anybody gets in the situation that we have a, a healthy, vibrant, active fellowship among the local church. And, and without that, this will never work. I mean, discipline is about teaching. I do think I do think there is an aspect that we have to, you know, acknowledge that in 1 Corinthians 5, there is a part of this that is about protecting other people from the influence of those, especially in that case, somebody who is so immoral. And you can't ignore that. Part of this is that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And there, there was a part of this where this, this also happens. But again, to go back to what we said, the problem is the way you practice it now. Most cases, that's not what's happening. That's not usually why people are marked or disciplined or withdrawn from, however you want to say it. I would venture to guess the majority of times, at least that I've known of, where this discussion has been had, the majority of times, it's about attendance. Now, that's not to say that I've not been involved in times where people were marked and, they were, and it was done effectively and it was done quickly and it was effective. I mean, and it worked and people repented. I know of those times that that's happened. Um, but the times that it's been unsuccessful, it's largely about this administrative part. I think one of the keys to this about being effective is also that this 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 makes us really uncomfortable, what I'm about to say, but there's a lot of things in Scripture that I think shepherds are expected to, to make subjective judgments about. And, and what I mean by that is this isn't something that you can set up a list of standards and checklists and, oh, this this person's missed X number of Sundays. Now it's time to to mark them. Or this person's committed this sin, now it's time to mark them. It's it's not like that. I think it's a case-by-case case deal. Like you cannot, you can't just have a one-size-fits-all to these kind of subjects. That's where those hours of interaction come into play. If you spend a lot of time with sinners, you'll find out that there's some similarities, but nobody's exactly alike. Even if they do the same things, there's differences in how they talk and their background and their worldview and their culture and all that. And all that plays a role in how you handle with people. I, I mean, I've got three kids. I'm I'm not Shanks level, but I have three kids. They're they're all three different. Like I have to parent all three of them differently. And I'm sure with your five, it's the same way. They all have their different personalities. It's I mean, there are some rules that we have that are across the board, but there's a lot of things that are specific to each child that is best for their growth and maturity. I think that plays a role in this as well that that we're sometimes just uncomfortable with. Well, and I would even add to add a little to the level of discomfort that there are ways in which our procedure need to change with the time. And what I mean by that is parenting today is entirely different than the job my parents had to do with me because of technology, because <laughs> of the temptations that are before kids today that, that, that just weren't there when I was a kid. Things weren't as readily available. There was just a different moral standard to uh, the culture, you know, those types of things. You know, the job of parenting has shifted and changed because the struggles are different. It used to be 50 years ago, people were brought up with a certain expectation of when you, quote, join a church, this is what is required of you. Nearly everybody from every community came with an expectation of what they were volunteering for when they became a part of the local church. That's not true anymore. When somebody comes in and they love the local group and they decide to become a Christian because they love the story of Jesus and 
now all of a sudden they're not showing up anymore and you've got a lot of people who are going well shouldn't they have known i mean they 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 became a member they should be here well has anyone told them that has that conversation been had uh, is is that something we've discussed with them we can't assume people know things anymore because culture has changed and so that makes our level of patience, our type of warning and exhortation and teaching, all of that has to change. And, and I don't know that we've changed enough to meet that expectation. Uh, I would just agree with that wholeheartedly. Sometimes it just feels like things haven't changed much in my 47 years, like the things I remember from my yeah. childhood till now. But, but culture's changed a lot. I mean, I, you bring up the way we're raised. Look, when I was growing up, if I messed up in Walmart, my parents could whip my tail in the middle of the aisle. You can't do that now. It's just, it's just different. And I think, I think you have to, you have to change with the times, but at the same time, what you're changing is not what the scriptures actually say. And the scriptures make this clear. You make a public note. This person is unfaithful. I really think the key to this is the fellowship aspect, Adam. And I think the thing that bothers me about this disfellowshipping is it gives this idea that we're just done with them. The language in some of these passages, like in 1 Thessalonians 5, continue to admonish them as a brother. And it's interesting that we have this process where we go, he's no longer a brother, he's disfellowshipped. And Paul says, no, continue to admonish him as a brother. He's still your brother. You have to keep admonishing him. You have to keep reaching out and encouraging him. I hope you have found today's episode as enjoyable as I did. And I hope it's been helpful to you, interesting, and even educational to you. Maybe it's changed your mind on a couple of things. It's possible it's even brought up questions in your mind, and I encourage you to reach out to me. You can find all of my information at edenhollow.com or at preachimpediments.com, or you can check us out on Facebook. We would love to have correspondence with you in any of the ways you would choose to reach out to us, so please reach out to us and let us know how we can help you. We also encourage you to check out past episodes and share any episodes that you found particularly interesting with others who might also enjoy them, learn from them, and maybe even be changed by them. We encourage you to continue studying, and we'd love to have you check back in with us for our next episode. Until then, 